shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't need maybe. Welcome to uh, Nocturnal Journal tonight on WGN. We've got a very, very fine show uh, for you. In the 10 o'clock hour, we're going to have Milwaukee singer-songwriter John Seeger in the studio playing some songs uh, from the reformed uh, semi-twang, their latest record, Kenosha. Uh, later on, we're also going to talk about the massive uh, Cadillac Baby R&B Blues Soul reissue that's coming out uh, next month. But we're going to begin the segment, it doesn't get any better than this, with uh, Mr. Jerry Lee Lewis the third, the son of the uh, legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. We've been trying to get you on the show for a while, Jerry. You okay? Oh, you're, Jerry, you, you all right? He's not, not there yet. I talked to Jerry about a half hour ago, so we know, uh, we know he's around. Um, in January, I... Uh, was in the uh, Graceland RV Park campground, and I was getting up in the morning, didn't know what to do, and um, I said, you know, I've always wanted to go to the Jerry Lee Lewis Ranch in Nesbitt, which is about 20 miles south of Memphis. So it's it's really, really a, a homespun place. No, uh, There's no filter. You just... Uh, you just... Uh... <laughs> He's not answered. Um... So, I mean, you don't have to, uh, there's no, like, real big website or anything. You just have to, uh, no luck. Anyway, you just uh, show up, really. I was on a tour of about uh, four or five people. Are you there, Jerry? I'm here. I'm riffing. I'm not very good at riffing. Hey, How are you? <laughs> Man, I can't complain. How are y'all doing? Thanks for joining us. I was I was saying I, I met you in January and uh, there were some delays in getting you on the show, so um, I'm glad you can join us tonight on a Saturday night. So thank you. Yeah, man, no problem. Glad to be here. And does that sound okay, Ro? Does that sound all right? Okay. Where are you at? Are you? Uh, are you? Uh, I'm. At, I'm actually. I'm actually downtown on Beale Street at, at the club, Jerry Lee Lewis's Cafe. Yeah, you're working on. You said you were working on that. Anything new there? Uh, I mean, man, we got things new all the time. You know, we've got a new party room opened up. The summer's coming down. You know, Elvis Week is coming in August. So it's just a really big time for it. So you get the place ready. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I want to get to the to the ranch. I was so excited, as you know, by touring the ranch. But uh, we had to delay it for a couple months because your dad had a minor stroke. So everybody will want to know, how, how's your dad doing? You know, he's doing really well. You know, he's, he's sticking to his therapy that he does twice a week, three times a week as far as outpatient goes. And then he does do it in the house as well. So, And he's back home, so that's really good for him. And this is the house over uh, – this isn't the house that I toured. This is the house down the road in Hernando, right? No, he's over at the one in South Haven right now. South Haven, okay. All right. And mm -hmm. what kind of what kind of patient is he? I mean, you know, I mean, he's some people he's <laughs> kind of an impatient guy. So is he is he taking doctor's orders and all that stuff? Well, you know, the killer is how the how the killer is. But you know, he 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 takes his doctor's orders pretty well. You know, he does for the most part what he's supposed to do. But you know, he's the boss. So when the doctors understand that he's the boss, everything works out a lot better. <laughs> 
I, I like the way you call your dad the killer. That's good. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is there a, is there a timetable for um, like when he's gonna? I know there's talk about a gospel record, and, and first of all, yeah. a timetable to record again, and then also to get on the road again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely his goal. You know, the doctor set him about a year or so to get better, and in saying that, you know, he's more better. That he's he's ahead of those projections is what I'm trying to say. So that that's really good. Yeah. How old is he now? Eighty three. Eighty three. Eighty four in September. Wow, that's something. That's something. Well, right. wish wish him well for us. I definitely will. It, absolutely. Is it a, is it a gospel record that he's got planned? That he had? I think he was planning that before he uh, he fell ill, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something he's worked on a little bit already. So it's really something he wants to get back in there and get finished because he's really looking forward to it. Okay. Um, so I was uh, when we were find, trying to find you. Um, I was setting the, setting the segment up. So yeah, I'm in the campground up there by Graceland. I just I call you guys and uh, I take my little van down there and uh, and we get a little tour of the ranch. So tell the listeners it was it was really unfiltered. You know, I I've done Graceland, I've done Paisley Park, but yours is so down home and accessible. So talk about. Um, Talk about when the ranch opened to the public and um, and what people can expect when they go there. I've got some detailed questions, but um, yeah, well, talk. you know we've been open, a, you know we've been open a few years now. But I think the main difference, like you said, between us and everybody else, it's a very unfiltered tour. You know, you get to see how he lives his day to day life and how he you know continues to build his legacy because it's one of the coolest things about you know our awards and the accolades that we have on the wall over at the ranch. When Dad gets something new, if he wants it up, it goes up. You know, if he wants something moved. It, it, it gets moved. We're not, you know, we're never changing it for like an exhibit. It's very much a, an ever evolving because it's our home. You know, you get to see exactly how the killer lives. And uh, so I went through there. So talk about what people can expect. Is I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I wrote a little story about it. We'll, we'll post on our website here. But uh, talk about the different rooms in the living room and the den. Well, I mean, that's that's probably the coolest, right? So, I mean, you walk in, and, you know, the, especially that very first part of the house, it's like walking into the 70s, right? Yeah, right. You go, you go into that room with that super plush carpet. You know, central lighting is definitely wasn't a thing in the 70s, so you know how our lamps are. Yeah. But as soon as you walk in, you know, right there, as soon as you walk into that room, one of my favorite things in the house to see, you see it immediately, and that's that American flag that went up to space and went to the moon on Apollo 14. Yeah. And how, how was that acquired? You know, that was acquired because Dad is literally the first music played on the moon with some of his other, you know, compatriots. They got to send, you know, a lot of them sent their album out at the time or a single or an LP. But Dad actually went to the studio. He recorded a cassette tape of about eight songs. And, you know, he plays to them. The way he does is he plays a jam, and he's like, hey, guys, we know you're, you know, a long way from home, but we hope you're going to make it back soon, so here's another one for you. And, and that's just the coolest part about our house. You get to walk through and see those things and, and you know, see where he's the honorary mayor of his hometown of Faraday, Louisiana, and his gold records. And I just think it's really cool because, like I said, you know, awards still get put up on those walls when they come in, and it's, ever, you know, an ever-changing thing. I want to uh, – got to take a break for some commercials, and then uh, we'll be back. I want to hit on some highlights, uh, like the bedroom closet with uh, 30 shoes with all of the left feet. So. Okay, my friend? <laughs> Sounds good. I love okay. it. Jerry Lee Lewis III, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal. We're back with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis III on uh, WGN. How you doing, Jerry? Jerry, you there? I'm here. Okay. So um, you're about 20 miles uh, set up where the ranch is. You're about 20 miles south of Memphis. Talk about the landscape. I mean, when I drove down there, it's it's a rural area. It's on 35 acres of private yep. with a private lake. Talk about what it's like there. 
I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful properties in the world, and that's probably just because I'm a little biased to it being that I grew up there. But, you know, you get to see, you know, what I like to see, you know, call, you know, the southern, the, you know, the southern experience at its best, right? That private lake, you know, it's quiet. There's not a lot going on in that on Malone Road right there. You know, you as a child, you know, I love my children being out there because they get to see deer that come up to the lake in the early morning, and there's turtles out there everywhere. You get to really just experience that, and I think it's a great place for a child to grow up, and I think it's a great place for a rock and roll legend to hide out when he wants them quiet. Is it true he uh, he broke his uh, right leg skiing on the lake one time in the 80s? Absolutely, on a jet ski, and not only once, but twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he liked it so much. He was had to do it a second time. Now, before he got sick, I mean, he wants It was you told me when I was going through there. It was like a business place for him. I mean, once he'll still visit the place when when he can, although he doesn't really sleep there anymore, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of half and half for him. You know, when he was better. Uh, before, you know, he was in recovery, he was there kind of 50-50, you know, staying there how he wanted to. And that's one of the reasons why we do our tours by appointments. You know, like we talked about when you were there, it's so he wants to know when people are going to be on and off the property. And, if you know, however one day, you know, he wanted to keep the property closed, he will because he wants some privacy. Or, or maybe, you know, he's not there and somebody booked a tour and he decides he's going to drop in on them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that happen. Um <laughs> The Pet Cemetery. I was very excited about that. Talk about the Pet Cemetery with uh, Country Dog Lewis. There's a lot of dogs in the in the Pet Cemetery. There's one cat, right? Cowbell yep, Lee Lewis. Yep. That's right. Correct. You know, and uh, you know, it's just really because that's our family. You know, that's our little family. We used to bury them on the other side where we, you know, as you saw, we on the other side of the lake. But as Dad got older, you know, we needed somewhere closer. And he was able to provide a really, you know, a close space for uh, our little family to rest. And I thought an interesting fact, fact you told me, uh, the house, uh, how old is the house? And you said it was built with Chicago brick. Well, it was. It was built with Chicago fire brick. It was built in 1969, and my father moved in in 1973. Did he, did he have it built? Did he over, I mean, how hands-on was it when it was being built? How hands-on was he? Well, he wasn't hands-on when it was built. You know, the story he told me is he was driving around on Malone Road. He came on down there, and he saw it, and he was like, man, this, this is a really good place where I could get some privacy. And what he told me then is he went up to the house, he talked to the man who, who owned it, and I guess he offered him a nice cash sum, and he had it that night. <laughs> uh, before it gets away from us, how could people uh, make a reservation? How can people come and see you? Give us all the details on that. Well, you can go right online to thelewisranch.com and, and book that tour directly. I mean, you could always give us a call, too. Uh, I will say, you know, we are currently closed until the 1st of August. We're actually getting some repairs and renovations done, and it should be really nice for us by the time we open back up in August. Okay, I teased the listeners with the bedroom closet with uh, 30 shoes all on the left feet. <laughs> uh, how, how did that happen? So, I mean, that's pretty crazy in itself. As you saw, you know, they're all pretty much the same shoe. Uh, you know, all have different soles, which is crazy to me, considering they're all pretty much the same shoe. But like you said, it's all the left feet. Where did those right feet go? I mean, did they fly off when he was kicking on the stage? Did a fan grab them off of him? I mean, heck, you know, we don't know, but <laughs> those left feet are all there. Has he, um, has he helped, like, archive this stuff? Does he tell you about some of the items? I mean, or did you know growing Tell the listeners how old you are. You're, you're a young man. How old, how old are you? Great. I I'm 32. I, I was born when he went. He was in his 50s. Yeah. And I mean, he's very. 
he's very hands-on with our archival process. I mean, we definitely have things that we still receive all the time from fans, be it artwork or memorabilia. You know, we're always on the lookout for old pictures of him we may not have and awards. And that's what I was saying when, you know, he decides he wants something on the wall or he wants something taken down. It's not because we're changing an exhibit or, you know, making room for that. It's because he wants it on the wall and he wants to be there to enjoy it. The bedroom. Um, yep. There was a bedroom where you told me he taught you how to throw a knife. <laughs> Absolutely. How did that happen? When I was about six, well, when I was about six years old, I guess it was about time to start learning how to throw it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got, a, <laughs> we've got a latch on that door there that we'd stand at the edge of the bed. And we throw a knife, and that's, you know, he's infinitely better than I am at throwing it, but I'm pretty good. <laughs> what are, what are some of the questions people ask when they're, when, when they're going through? I mean, uh, you know, what, what's on their mind when they're going through the house? You know, I mean, it ranges anywhere from, you know, when was he born, you know, what was going on in Faraday when he was growing up to, you know, what was it like at Sun Records from him when he went up there and, how, you know, who was Sam Phillips? How was, you know, how was he as a person? You know, who uh, who out of the Million Dollar Quartet Dad loved hanging out with? I mean, I get just about every question under the sun. And that's, I mean, honestly, it's it's a great time for me to, to share that experience and to talk to people about it. You told me uh, Carl Perkins hung out the most at the house. There's that little, talk about that yeah. little room they'd be in, that little room in the back there. Uh, you said Cash would come by now and then, but talk about the people who would come to visit him. You know, I really remember Carl being out there a lot and, the, and them hanging out. And that was the one thing, like, you know, there wasn't cell phones back then. So Carl would come, and whether he was staying at the house for a little while or, you know, him and Dad were going out to Memphis and whatever they were doing. But eventually, you know, are they coming home? And so, you know, my mom would have to call around. And, you know, she'd call Sam Phillips. Hey, are they over there? She'd call down to the Hernando's uh, hideaway or the Vapors Club. Are they down there? <laughs> eventually, we'd get them back to the ranch. Yeah, you mentioned the hideaway. We had Dale Watson on a couple months ago, not long after I saw you. Uh, anything new over there? Yeah. Tell and, and for the 101, tell the listeners uh, what the hideaway is. It's over in Memphis. It's not far from Graceland, but your dad hung out there a lot. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that was like dad's second home, especially when he was in town. Like, he he would go, he'd come off the road. If you remember that old Wurlitzer electric piano I showed you while you were there, you know, he'd keep that in the back of his Cadillac, and he'd come in off the road. He'd head right down to the hideaway. They'd unload it, and he'd get right back to playing. And Dale Watson kind of took that over, right? Yeah, he just got it here, I mean, not terribly long ago, but I think they've been working on it for a little over a year now, and he's getting ready to open it back up. We're really I, looking forward to that. I imagine that might be open uh, by the time of the Elvis stuff or not? I'm not 100%. I mean, I haven't talked to him about it in a hot minute, but, I mean, I know they're actively working on trying to get it open as soon as they can, yeah. and it's something Dad's really looking forward to. So, um, I love this story, too. There's so many interesting stories uh, about this project. So, you, I, I think I have the year right. You said your dad called you in 2017, and you were up up in our neck of the woods. You were at uh, Grand, in Grand Rapids, right? Yeah, yeah. I was up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He had uh, he had actually come up there for Christmas time. You know, my my little boy Jerry Lee the Fourth had just turned one, and he was up there visiting and. You know, he had a couple things going on, some projects he wanted to get done. One of them was the ranch, you know, one of them was an album, and one of them was making sure the club down here on Beale was running, you know, as tight as it could be. And he asked me to come home and take care of those things, so I did, and I haven't looked back since. And you were working at a TGI Fridays, right? You were a manager, bar manager there? 
I was. I was a bar manager up at uh, up at TGI Fridays. I had a, you know a great team there, Rob and Tony and them. They they were great people and gave me a great job. And I, I mean, I did learn a lot working for them. Wow! And was that in Grand Rapids proper, or was that outside of Grand Rapids? Uh, that was in Grand Rapids, two two locations in Grand Rapids, and uh, one in Kentwood, Michigan, too, which is basically right next door to Grand Rapids. Uh, so I, I asked you this when I met you, but I mean, like you go on a job interview. Uh, well, you know, you say, I'm Jerry Lee Lewis III. What do people say? Man, I, I tell you, I've experienced just about everything <laughs> under the sun from, from a job interview. I mean, like, literally, I've had people just call me in just to see if I was a real person. And I'm like, heck yeah, man. You know, I got you want, got work to be done. There's work to be done. Let's get it done. And But, yeah, <laughs> they can be very interesting, I tell you that. <laughs> well, you're the, you're the best. Is it hot down there? Is it hot in Memphis right now? Man, Dave, you really got to ask that question? Yeah, it's hot up here. <laughs> it's hot. Okay. Well, I'm glad we finally got you on the show. Um, it was It's yeah, a great man. tour. It's highly recommended. You don't take people's cell phones like they do at Paisley Park. You don't have to put them in a little case or anything. It's just, And you lead the tour, right? I mean, you, you do that, hey, right? I, I am definitely leading that tour the majority of the time. You know, sometimes Alex does those tours. He's a friend of the family. You know, I've I've known that kid since he was a baby, and he learned, he knows a whole lot about my father Jerry Lee. And you know, we have a good time with it. And that's you know, that's the really the probably one of the coolest things about our tour, honestly, is it's me or it's Alex. Heck, I mean, even my my mama Judith. You know, sometimes she's there and she'll do the tour, and that's what's just a really cool part of it. You're you're learning his history from his family and from his friends, and I think you get a really good firsthand experience because of that. Highly recommended. Thank you, Jerry. Say hi to your dad. Wish him well. Dave, I definitely will, and I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you. Okay, stay in touch with us. You have a good one, Dave. Okay, thank you. And we'll be back with more on Nocturnal Journal after this. Introducing a few of our most honored guests here tonight from radio station WPA, Big Bill Hill and Buddy Spang. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Michael Frank, thanks for joining us. Uh, Delighted to be here, Dave. Um, I'm going to turn it up a little bit there. Um, Cadillac Baby. Um, first of all, I haven't seen you in 20 years. Now I've seen you <laughs> twice in a week or something. You're the uh, still out here. President, founder of uh, Earwig, Earwig uh, Music. Yes. Do I have that right? Started right here in Chicago in 1979. Earwig Music Company. Um, and so I knew you through, uh, I think I, I really got to know you through your work with Honey Boy Edwards. You know, we did a lot of stories on him and stuff like that. You played with him. I knew him 39 out of the last 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 39 years. Yeah. But you've got this project. <laughs> this is like right up, this is just so great. Um I don't know where to begin. Just well, you know, we'll just do one on one. You heard a little bit of this Cadillac baby there at the well, beginning of the segment. Tell people who Cadillac Baby yeah, right. was. Yeah. And uh well, who was he? Cadillac Baby was a hard working hustler. I mean that in a positive sense, who came up to Chicago right after World War Two. Came up from Mississippi. From Mississippi, around near Edwards, Mississippi, near Jackson. And uh, he worked while he was up here initially as a day laborer and a janitor, but he was a blues entrepreneur early on down in Mississippi with his mother, r running uh, 
you know, house parties with blues with the Mississippi Sheiks and selling fish and moonshine. And, and so when he got up here, he wanted to do that again because he loved blues. He loved gospel, too, and, you know, all kinds of music. But he was especially interested in country blues, urban blues, R&B, and gospel. And so he decided, after he'd saved up enough money to get started, that he wanted to have a nightclub and he loved Cadillacs. So um, he started a club call, called Cadillac Baby's Show Lounge, but that wasn't really the first uh, version of it. And, and he used to help a lot of musicians and poor people, winos, as he, wineheads as he called them, um, just give money and help them when they needed a favor or something. Just a little helping hand. And so... He started to help musicians, and those musicians suggested to him that he get into the record business in order to make some of the money back that he'd so generously given them. And that's why he started the record label. But first, he was in the nightclub business. And the name of the label was? B and Baby Records was the main name of the label. B was for his wife, Bertha, and he was Baby for Cadillac Baby. But actually... The baby goes back earlier than that. When he was a kid, he was known as Baby Eatman. The winos started calling him Cadillac Baby because he always liked to have a Cadillac. <laughs> and you know, I was infatuated with the story. He actually did drive a Cadillac onto the stage of uh, yes. some of his venues. In uh, the Cadillac Baby show lounge, he, he built um, a revolving stage and he built a ramp to the stage and garage doors into the club, which actually... Was on two two corners, forty eight seventh, and uh, Dearborn, and so he drove his Cadillac up onto the stage, and he would sit there with the microphone and MC the show. Four CDs, <laughs> about how many songs? Over on over. Well, there's a hundred one tracks. There are four, uh, four little interview snippets of him talking about his life in Mississippi, his early history, and his time in Chicago, courtesy of um, Jim O'Neill yeah. and Steve Cushing, another radio guy. Yeah. And uh, that was very generous of them to let me actually enable people to hear Cadillac Baby's own voice talking about his exploits and about some of the musicians. And, uh, I mean, you can elaborate on this, but holy mackerel. Hound Dog Taylor, Sonny Line <laughs> Slim, Sleepy John Estes, Homesick James, yeah. uh, the late Andre Williams, who we just lost. Yeah. Uh, my friend uh, T. Valentine. I think we might play one of his uh, snippet of his track. <laughs> uh, we're going to have one of your artists on in the next segment, but um, it's just, it's, it's it, uh, you know what I like about it? Uh, it, it goes beyond blues. I mean, it goes oh, yeah. in the, he recorded everything. I mean, soul, R&B, there's comedy, gospel. I mean, it's really, really a great flavor of Chicago life. It really covers almost all, everything in Chicago except rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, there's, he didn't do jazz per se, but there are a couple of instrumentals uh, on this box set where you can hear... You know, it might be something like you might have heard from Jimmy Smith or Groove Holmes, but it was Paul, tall Paul Hankins. But, uh, yeah, he loved all of it, and he wanted to have his hand in all of it as a fan and as an entrepreneur to, to make money. 
You worked on this, you told me the other day, you worked on this seven years? I started working on it in earnest in uh, 2012. Yeah. But I, I got involved with Cadillac Baby in 1989, in 1988, and ended up... The hip-hop that's on this project was from 1989 when Cadillac Baby wanted to get back in the record business. Um, and he and I followed our mission, which was to help musicians, and we, we met this young kid, 3D, who was 17, and his mother who was hard-driving, uh, really helping him. And uh, Richard Davenport. Richard Davenport, and she talked us into, convinced us that he was really worth taking seriously, and Cadillac Baby and I took Richard at, at the age of 17 into the studio and did two hip-hop tracks. Um, we didn't put them out at the time, but then Cadillac Baby died, and then a the month after that, Richard was murdered. And so, but even though there were a lot of young kids, hip-hoppers that knew him, and were calling me because they wanted the same, they wanted to get in the business too, that scared me a bit. Um, so I, I just put his music in the archives until I actually um, bought Cadillac Baby's label and decided that was the final music that Cadillac Baby had his hands-on and uh, was actually, you know, he and I were co-producers on that. It was going to be a and Baby Records, Earwig Music co-production, co-branded. Um, when, so. did, when did he pass? <laughs> real name, Narvell Eatman? He was, his real name was Narvell Eatman, yeah, no, but everybody called him Cadillac. Guess. Or Cadillac Baby, or ba just Baby. <laughs> when when did he pass away? Um, March of 1991. And how? What situation was he in? I mean, was his he? His health had declined from 89 to 91, and eventually ended up in nursing home. But it was congestive heart failure. Financially, where was all this music? These are all big um, questions. But his music career was way way behind him. Um, he found out, like. Many people in the record business found out that it's hard to make uh, make money as an independent label with local artists, no matter how good they are. And so, oh, um, after his heyday, which was from 60, 59 to 65, um, even though he did some more recording in 70 and 71, he basically had a hard time financially. And by the time I met him, he was actually only selling some 45s that he had as well as hubcaps buying and selling hubcaps I read that, yeah. candy and stuff but he still you know a lot of musicians knew him and would visit him and he had a dream of getting back in one more time and well so he is he too bad he's, <laughs> maybe um okay we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back with one of the, there's not many artists left but we're gonna have one on the phone from birmingham after this yes. and uh it's great because he helped you uh with this project he had some, some wonderful stories. He he put uh, gave me more personal context for what Cadillac Baby's business was actually like. So I want to talk about that, yeah. and I also want to talk about the chess the chess relationship yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that. So don't go away. This is great stuff on uh, WGN's Nocturnal Journal. Everybody was walking at a barbecue, the man I was jumping. Uh-huh. Which 
became about 11 o'clock. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's the Daylighters with uh, Tony Gideon. Uh, I think we're to Tony. Tony must be with Jerry Lewis because we can't. I don't think we can find him either. But uh, we're gonna text him. So talk about that track. Talk about who these guys were. You know, I, I guess that I hadn't seen you in twenty years. But God, you're doing you're doing stuff like this. I always associate you with Sunny Land Slim and Honey well, Boy Edwards. Yeah, and then I, I know, but <laughs> but actually, I was listening to stuff like Tony Gideon was doing before I was listening to blues. Yeah, because I was from Pittsburgh. Yeah, and vocal groups were huge and still are in Pittsburgh, and I would hear it on the radio and loved it. So, uh, that so it was a natural fit. But Tony Gideon and the Daylighters were one of Many local, um, regional doo-wop groups. And for those of you who may not know what doo-wop <laughs> is, doo-wop is vocal uh, group vocals, uh, usually with a lead vocalist and background, well, accompanying vocalists. You know, at different uh, vocal ranges: tenor, bass baritone often two tenors yeah um and their doo-wop was hugely popular all over the united states and eventually all over the world since the early 50s um and tony gideon was in one of those groups which is from chicago actually they started in birmingham alabama where he's from right and they moved up here he moved up here and then went back to Birmingham and came back again with his whole group. And then it, they recorded for Cadillac Baby as the Daylighters. So you came, I, I didn't ask you this question the other day when we were had uh, whatever we did, we had a beer and a coffee <laughs> at the Hollywood Grill. Um, so you come to Chicago in 70... I moved here in June of 72. And you were a big music guy. Is that, was that why you I came was to... a fan. Yeah who knew I wanted to be around blues musicians, meet blues musicians. I had several thousand blues LPs by then and other kinds of music, but more blues albums. And so I wanted to meet the musicians and hear them in their own environment where they were making the music and get to know them. And so Chicago was the place to be. And I think, just in line with that, I got a question, but I'll put it on hold. Tony, you there? I'm here. Hey, how are you, Tony? I'm hanging in, man. Thanks for joining us. We got Michael on on the phone. Hi, Tony. Yeah, I heard you I mean, guys. I'm, yeah. So, actually, he was talking about me. How did you guys first hook up? Uh, how did you, Tony, how did you meet Michael? Well, uh, actually, Jim O'Neill uh, had uh, phoned me several times and was asking all kinds of uh, I thought crazy questions <laughs> concerning uh, Cadillac Baby and my time with, you know, being Baby Records. And um, when uh, uh, I was talking to Bob Pruder one day oh, yeah. and on Facebook, and I mentioned that uh, Jim had called me and he was asking me all these questions. So uh, Bob said, well, I don't know, maybe he's writing a book. And uh, then Bill Dahl came on, mm -hmm. and, and they said, all helped with this project. Pr Pruder and Bill Dahl said, "Oh, he's calling you uh, for uh, he's interviewing you for liner notes." 
uh, I said, line of notes for what? Oh, the old B and Baby stuff that you did with with Cadillac Baby. And that's how I, I found out that Michael had purchased uh, uh, the uh, catalog. And then uh, Michael and I, uh, it's just recently with that we uh, got hooked up, touch bases with each other. And uh, it's been a, been a few months, right? It's been a few months. Can you hear him now? Oh, okay. Yeah. Just ask me a question. Yeah. How long have you been working uh, together on this, uh, Michael? Well, I started talking with Tony about maybe about a year ago. Um, it's I found out from reading one of um, Bob Pruder's books. Yeah. On Chicago, well, both of them, Chicago Soul and and his duop book about Tony uh, in more detail. I mean, I knew about him from the 45s, but I, I didn't really know the depth of his experience or his deep connection to Cadillac Baby and his role until I actually started talking with him on the phone, and we became friends. I've never actually met Tony in oh, person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to either go to Birmingham or bring him up to Chicago later on this year when I do a special event. Tony Michael looks like a modern day Clint Eastwood. <laughs> but oh, yeah. Tony yeah. has such wonderful stories. Yeah. He filled in a lot of gaps in my understanding of Cadillac Baby and his operations. And I, I said that plural because Cadillac Baby had his hands in a whole bunch of different things, and Tony filled me in on a, a lot of that yeah, in yeah. more detail and had a big role in it in 1959, 1960. What was his? Uh, I got two questions here for you, uh, Tony. What was uh, Cadillac uh -huh. Baby's business acumen like? And I know you've you've gotten your own business started. And what did you learn from watching his the way he worked? What did you learn what to do, and what did you learn that did didn't work? Well, uh, actually, I learned to record blues with Cadillac Baby. Uh, he had a tremendous year for blues. And, and music in general, but especially blues. He could record blues like nobody else. And I, I, I picked up on that due to the fact that, you know, my I, I started out very young in music uh, here in Birmingham uh, as as a youngster, and uh, I, I just music was, has always been a part of my life, you know. Okay. And uh, but Cadillac uh, uh, was like a, a, a big brother or father or whatever you want to call it, because we we hung together day in and day out, and he would teach me or just talk to me about stuff, you know, and some things I won't go into, but he was a he he was a very sharp guy. He discovered uh, Hound Dog Taylor came around when you guys were. Tell, tell the story about it. I read that in the notes. The notes yeah. are excellent. I want to give props to all these guys that are <laughs> yeah, friends of mine, uh, Dahl and Pruder. And, yeah. We were sitting. Uh, we happened to be sitting in, in the uh, club, and we were eating uh, some red beans and rice. Miss B had fixed, and she could really cook. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Hound Dog would come by every day, get his wine, 
and he'd go down the fence with uh, some of the guys he hung out with. Uh, Cadillac had a, a slab fence that ran down down the sidewalk around the property, you know. And what I mean by slab, it had the bark on it. The the when you cut the outside of a, a tree and 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 it uh leave the bark on that on that piece of wood. Well that's the kind of fence he had running down there. And uh Hound Dog came in and he said, uh Elmore James had been working at the club and Elmore uh was sick. He had a uh, Elmore had a heart problem. And so uh uh, Hound Dog was standing there, and he was talking. He said, Cadillac, I can play like Elmore. And we looked at him, and we just thought, you know, he was, oh, this guy is out of his tree. So anyway, uh, Cadillac looked at him, and he said, well, okay, if you can play like Elmore, there's a guitar over there and the amp. Go ahead. He went over there. He turned the amp on, tuned up the guitar, and took the bottleneck out of his pocket. And when he started to play, you would have thought Elmo was sitting there. Uh, uh. <laughs> All right, on that and, note, we got we got to take a quick break um, for the news, but we're going to keep you both on for a little bit after 10 o'clock, okay? So, um, okay. Is that okay, Tony? That's fine. You okay, Michael? Yes. I like your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing like a hippie Peter Max shirt here, Tony. Life's a beach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Well, sometimes we got to hear Madhouse jump again. Uh, so on the, I don't know if you heard it the first time there. That, that was uh, Tony Gideon of the, of the Daylighters on that track. How you doing, Tony? Tony, you there? <laughs> Michael, you're here. I know that. I am. Uh, I don't hear Tony. We don't hear Tony in here. There's no Tony. Um, I'm looking for it. Well, anyway, so we we were going to talk about uh, T. Valentine. Yeah. So talk about that. Yeah. Well, T. Valentine is um, quite the character himself uh, musically. Uh, and when he's not on stage, he's just a, a very down-to-earth guy you'd never think was his stage persona. But he he's um, a guy that met Cadillac Baby in 1959 through Detroit Jr., who is a musician also affiliated with Cadillac Baby. And T. Valentine had, he was a writer of kind of free-form stories like about vampires and all kinds of And he's of still around. Stuff. He's still around on yeah. the South Side. And so he had a dream to be a recording artist. And so through Detroit Jr., he met Cadillac Baby and because T. Valentine loved the blues. He ended up making uh, a 45, which is a blues band with his sort of mixture of, ra of rapping, ranting, shouting, 
Um, it's it, very different from anything else on the label. Did you know him, uh, Tony? T. Valentine? Yeah. Yes, I knew T. Yeah, yeah. He had that novel he hit a few years back, uh, Lucille, Are you, a les <laughs> you a Lesbian? Did you know that song, Tony? I No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I uh, probably was uh, not in Chicago at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. his payback song to his ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all used to hang out over at the. Uh, uh, that was a club where we used to hang on Monday, all day on Mondays, and uh, over uh, on Indiana. It was in the basement of a hotel, and uh, I can't even think of the name of it now. Um. We were going to play, and on the podcast, we will hear a snippet of it, uh, of Little Lulu Frog. And you were telling me during the break, that's kind of like Baby doing the frog noise. Yeah. Really? So he was, like, all over the place. Yes, he was. He was an entrepreneur, right, Tony? That's one yeah, of the things Steve Allen like, uh, told you, me. You were, if you were, I don't know if you were around when uh, uh, the Regal Theater was there. Yeah. Well, uh, Cadillac Baby used to own those trucks that ran up and down South Park that advertised in the shows for the Regal Theater. But nobody knew he owned them. Oh. I was probably the only one, one of the a few people that knew. And he also was involved, he he, he would get a float for the Bud Billiken Parade, uh, right? He was like right there with Herb Kent, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Who, who was and on the Herb, float? Herb, Herb became a very close uh, friend of mine and, and, and uh, of the Daylighters also. And so, I mean, what was on the float? Did Was Cadillac maybe on the float? What was the scene? Yes. Are there, there's pictures of that in the... There's in a the, picture of him on the float. What I don't yeah, know is who the he, other people on the float were. Yeah. I don't remember who was on the float with him either. Yeah. And that's been a long time. Yeah, you're invaluable to this project, though, because you're you're the, one of the last ones left who was who was there, right, Tony? Yeah, and basically, I was uh, uh, the only one that really wasn't a musician at uh, playing on the sessions that would be at the sessions with him. Uh, we did sessions on uh, Sunnyland Slim, Roosevelt Sykes. We did the Money Tree on uh, Detroit Junior, and we did that. The uh, the Money Tree we did uh, just to draw uh, patrons into the club, and the and the song became a hit and sold sixty thousand copies in the city of Chicago. And what was the hook of the song? How to get people to come to the club? It was it was just a song. Uh, <laughs> it really was just a. He just did a a, a, a boogie type song. Too much money, da, 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 that kind of thing, and it hit. Wow! And the people just started. They would just come from the west side and different places into the club because the uh, Detroit Junior had the house band. And he was a good entertainer. I mean, he he was able to keep singing that song for the rest of his life, up you know on Lincoln Avenue at the blues clubs and. Yeah. Blues and Kingston Mines. Yeah, last time I that. saw Detroit Junior, I, uh, I was living in Mobile back during the seventies, and he came through there with uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf. Right, he and uh, Wolf, Wolf was an old friend of mine. Anyway, what a great project! Um, 
maybe we got two minutes left. Like we can't answer this question in two minutes. I'll get out of the way. But what was you guys? What was the relationship with Chess Records? They knew what you were doing. I I uh, recorded for Chess. Yeah, right. Leonard bought the first. The, I cut the first Watusi song right. ever recorded. Watusi, yeah. Yeah, and Leonard Chess uh, bought the master from Cadillac, and. He changed the title to What You Gonna Do, and he went on the flip side. The song was uh, entitled uh, The Way You Move Me, Baby. And about eight months after the song came out, I got drafted. Yeah. <laughs> so I was gone for two years. But I'm just, and I didn't go back to chess when I when I got out of the army. I mean, I'm just trying to ask. I asked this to Michael uh, last week. I mean, this whole this whole landscape of like chess and VJ. I just wonder where Cadillac Baby like fit in with all that. Was it kind of underground or not? Well, Cadillac was was uh, the guy that well, you would think actually had the third uh, company behind chess and VJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. In, uh, that was located in Chicago. That actually cut uh, rhythm and blues and blues. Okay, we got to. VJ did uh, was doing it all, and they had been doing it since about 1953. Okay, well, we got a break. Thank you guys. Thanks so much, uh, Tony, for joining us tonight from Birmingham. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, Michael. It's a pleasure. It comes out in August? Yes, early August. And how can people find out about it? They can go to Amazon.com right now. And pre-order. Pre-order, or they can go to EarwigMusic.com, which is my record label, and it's up on my website. It's great. It's really, really some great stuff. It's an eye-opener. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, we're going to be back with some live music from John Seeger, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we got to hear Madhouse jump again. Uh, so on the, I don't know if you heard it the first time there. That, that was uh, Tony Gideon of the, of the Daylighters on that track. How you doing, Tony? Tony, you there? <laughs> Michael, you're here. I know that. I am. Uh, I don't hear Tony. We don't hear Tony in here. There's no Tony. Um, I'm looking for it. Well, anyway, Tony so we we were going to talk about uh, T Valentine. Yeah. So talk about that. Yeah. Well, T Valentine is um, quite the character himself uh, musically. Uh, and when he's not on stage, he's just a, a very down to earth guy. You'd never think was his stage persona. But he he's um, a guy that met Cadillac Baby in 1959 through Detroit Junior, who is a musician also affiliated with Cadillac Baby. And he, T. Valentine had he was a writer of kind of free form stories like about vampires and all kinds. And he's of still stuff. around. He's still around on yeah. the South Side. And so he had a dream to be a recording artist. And so through Detroit Junior, he met Cadillac Baby and because T. Valentine loved the blues he ended up making uh, a 45 which is a blues band with his sort of mixture of, ra of rapping, ranting shouting um, it's it very different from anything else 
on the label. Did you know him, uh, Tony? T. Valentine? Yeah. Yes, I knew T. Yeah, yeah. He had that novel he hit a few years back, uh, Lucille, You a, Les- <laughs> You a Lesbian. Did you know that song, Tony? I No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I uh, probably was uh, not in Chicago at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. his payback song to his ex-wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all used to hang out over at the. Uh, uh, that was a club where we used to hang on Monday, all day on Mondays, and uh, over uh, on Indiana. It was in the basement of a hotel, and uh, I can't even think of the name of it now. Um. We were going to play, and on the podcast, we will hear a snippet of it, uh, of Little Lulu Frog. You were telling me during the break, that's Cadillac Baby doing the frog noise? Yeah. Really? So he was, like, all over the place. Yes, he was. He was an entrepreneur, right, Tony? That's one yeah, of the things Cadillac like, uh, told me. You, you were, if you were, I don't know if you were around when uh, uh, the Regal Theater was there. Yeah. Well, uh, Cadillac Baby used to own those trucks. That ran up and down South Park. That advertising the shows for the Regal Theater, but nobody knew he owned them. Oh. I was probably the only one, one of the a few people that knew. And he also was involved. He 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 would get a float for the Bud Billiken parade, uh, right? He was like right there with Herb Kent, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Who, who was and on the Herb, float? Herb, Herb became a very close uh, friend of mine and, and, and uh, of the Daylighters also. And so, I mean, what was on the float? Did Was Cadillac maybe on the float? What was the scene? Yes. Are there, there's pictures of that in the... There's a the, picture of him on the float. What I don't yeah, know is who the he, other people on the float were. Yeah. I don't remember who was on the float with him either. Yeah. And that's been a long time. Yeah, you're invaluable to this project, though, because you're you're the, one of the last ones left who was who was there, right, Tony? Yeah, and basically, I was uh, uh, the only one that really wasn't a musician at uh, playing on the sessions that would be at the sessions with him. Uh, we did sessions on uh, Sunnyland Slim, Roosevelt Sykes. We did the Money Tree on uh, Detroit Junior, and we did that. the uh, The Money Tree we did uh, just to draw uh, patrons into the club, and the and the song became a hit and sold sixty thousand copies in the city of Chicago. And what was the hook of the song? How to get people to come to the club? It was it was just a song. Uh, <laughs> it really was just a. He just did a a, a, a boogie type song. Too much money, da, 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 that kind of thing, and it hit. Wow! And the people just started. They would just come from the west side and different places into the club because the uh, Detroit Junior had the house band. And he was a good entertainer. I mean, he ca- he was able to keep singing that song for the rest of his life. Up, you know, on Lincoln Avenue at the blues clubs and yeah. blues and Kingston Mines. Yeah, last time I that. saw Detroit Junior, I was uh, I was living in Mobile back during the seventies, and he came through there with uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf. Right, he and uh, Wolf, Wolf was an old friend of mine. Anyway, what a great project! Um, 
maybe we got two minutes left. Like we can't answer this question in two minutes. I'll get out of the way. But what was you guys? What was the relationship with Chess Records? They knew what you were doing. I I uh, recorded for Chess. Yeah, right. Leonard bought the first. The, I cut the first Watusi song right. ever recorded. Watusi, yeah. Yeah, and Leonard Chess uh, bought the master from Cadillac, and. He changed the title to What You Gonna Do, and he went on the flip side. The song was uh, entitled uh, The Way You Move Me, Baby. And about eight months after the song came out, I got drafted. Yeah. <laughs> so I was gone for two years. But I'm just, and I didn't go back to chess when I when I got out of the army. I mean, I'm just trying to ask. I asked this to Michael uh, last week. I mean, this whole this whole landscape of like chess and VJ. I just wonder where Cadillac Baby like fit in with all that. Was it kind of underground or not? Well, Cadillac was was uh, the guy that well, you would think actually had the third uh, company behind chess and VJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. In, uh, that was located in Chicago. That actually cut uh, rhythm and blues and blues. Okay, we got to... VJ did, uh, was doing it all, and they had been doing it since about 1953. Okay, well, we got a break. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, uh, Tony, for joining us tonight from Birmingham. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, Michael. It's a pleasure. It comes out in August? Yes, early August. And how can people find out about it? They can go to Amazon.com right now. And pre-order. Pre-order, or they can go to EarwigMusic.com, which is my record label, and it's up on my website. It's great. It's really, really some great stuff. It's an eye-opener. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, we're going to be back with some live music from John Seeger, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal.
Honey, I don't even love you When love's out of fashion Yes, I will Oh, yes, I will Don't you talk to my heart, it won't listen to reason Honey, I don't even love you when I love that season Yes, I will, oh yes, I will Yes, I Seeger, how are you? I'm good. How about you? Thanks for joining us again. Well, you, I'm happy to be here. Can you hear me okay? What's that? Turn off this mic. All right. Can you hear me all right? I can almost hear okay. you. Okay. You got to shout at me. I'm, yeah. These ears are a little rocked out. I'm going to try the headphones. Okay. Tell us about that song. It's off uh, the latest, oh. latest semi-twang record, right? Well, it's on It's on the new semi-twang. Yeah. And uh, it's called, called Yes, I Will. Yeah. And... Uh, there's not much to say about it. It's me trying to be, my usual thing, trying to be like uh, an imaginary Dylan or something. <laughs> it's been a hang-up, you know, the resemblance. I know when I walk in here, everybody goes, there's Bob Dylan right there. But you can't help it if you heard him and you got him, you know. So every once in a while, I'll cough up one like that. And uh, and it sounds good. I'm, I'm, I love, I'm reviewing my own stuff now, just so you know. <laughs> it's fun, I meant to say. It's fun to play solo, and it's really fun to play the band. So... Uh, that's all I got to say on and that And it's song. fun to be on Nocturnal Journal. Yeah. You've been here before. Yeah. Can't, you were at the old studio. What's that? You were at the old studio. Yeah. 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 That was so cool. And, you're and this is beautiful, too. I mean, the view from here is, you know, Navy Pier. I just saw fireworks in the background. And I saw them again yeah. as I was playing. There we go. I'm going to turn, turn this up just a little bit. Yeah. They're doing the fireworks uh, just for you, John. They don't, do, they don't do that you every know, Saturday. Every Every time I come to town, it's like that. It's, I'm so tired of it. So you're going to be, uh, we're going to, in the next, uh, after the news, we'll do a giveaway, but you're going to be opening for Steve Forbert tomorrow yeah, night at the City yeah. Winery. Yeah, and if you haven't seen Steve Forbert, uh, he's on my top five of solo performers. He's just a thing unto himself. He's so good. So I'm thrilled. So, yeah, who are the, who are the, 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 who's the compass? Who are the people you look at as you were cutting your teeth on songwriting? Well, you mentioned Dylan. You mentioned Forbert. Yeah, obviously, Be Beatles and Stones and all that. But then uh, a friend of mine turned me on to Otis Redding, and yeah. that just put me over. And at an early age, I heard him, at, and uh, it just changed my life. And uh, so there was, you know, it's typical for a white guy to like white groups. We all know about that. And all these groups were pointing at Otis Redding going, Stones were doing his songs. And, you know, I'd heard the name, and a friend of mine says, hey, check this out. And 
so the stacks thing hit me really hard and uh so i've you know I like trying to live between those two worlds between whatever that means you know but if you don't have a little of that influence in you i don't know what you are you know you got to have some and it's a balancing act i don't like to pretend that i'm one or the other i'm certainly not in the blues world or the uh soul world uh, i'm nowhere near good enough you know i hang out with gospel singers in milwaukee i know what the real thing is but you can't you have to be informed by something and that's something that really moves me and just the phrasing the harmonies uh, all that is just uh, a thing for me so why Otis Redding as opposed to like uh, Ray Charles or Sam Cooke or I love know. them too yeah uh, you know my mom had Ray Charles uh, country record yeah, right. and uh, modern sounds and country western my mom wasn't hip but she dug Ray Charles and uh and she was a good person. And so I heard that growing up. And it's not like, you know, I've, and I heard plenty of, like, I heard this in a different way when I heard Otis Redding. In a way, I heard the white pop bands and the British bands that I was crazy about. Uh, it kind of thrilled me in that same way. Because, one, the, uh, the MGs were such a solid, cool band. Uh, there's n there'll never be anything like that again. They were so simple and so clean. Steve Cropper's my top yeah. guitar players ever I don't know you know um, I was spent a couple of days in Tulsa this week Ooh. and I went to the uh, the Dylan archive thing they've got yeah. it at the museum there and they've got some of his uh, some of his paintings and uh, stuff but that I'm gonna bring this up they showed a and I, I'm, I told my brother Doug who you know um, I'm really excited in a couple of years when they opened up a hundred thousand pieces of archives he's got, but um, they had a wallet that he gave them mm -hmm. and they showed stuff that came out of the wallet. And there was like a, there was a scrawled out phone number from Johnny cash, but then yeah. there was a business card from Otis Redding. And it said, it said how he wanted him. This happened right before the plane crash, how he wanted him to write him a song that was just like, just like a woman. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And that would have happened. Yeah. That know, that, happened. That's the tragedy there is that, uh, he might have had his uh, Otis might have had a silly period, you know, where he's, you know, everybody does. Yeah, but this you know. is my silly period. This, <laughs> this radio show. Well, well, you think of McCartney's great, but yeah. he also had a, that period where you couldn't listen to him, and everybody uh, kind of, you know, they have their great period and they come back to something different. Dylan does that all the time. Otis Redding would have created so much beautiful yeah. stuff, yeah. and he would have been producing. He his first, uh, you know, he did. Uh, who's the guy who did? Uh, do you like soul music? Arthur Conley. Arthur Conley, yeah. That yeah. was his first production. So he would have been doing more of that, too. Well, it's good to see you. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We're going to come okay. back with some more music. We're going to talk about semi-twang. We're going to give right. away those tickets yes. to see you, uh, a pair of tickets to see you with Glad Steve Forbert tomorrow night. So uh, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN.